Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Side Hustles and Stuff podcast, episode 33. My name is Yuri, and I'm joined by Keishi. Hey, Yuri. How are you today? I'm pretty cold. How about you? <laughs> um, I'm doing fine. It's pretty chilly outside today, and the weather's really bad. Was it snowing? I heard it was snowing somewhere. Oh, really? I don't know. Okay. It seemed more like rain in Tokyo, but I think the next thing is drinks. Yeah, so, so I have a, a honey and, and the Japanese plum water here. Um, I don't know what you call it in English, but it's it's not the plum in the typical sense of the word. I think it's the Japanese plum, the umeboshi. Yeah, yeah it's, it's ume. Um, so, so it's it's a bit more sour than a regular plum, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I was just trying was this. It? Yeah, let me try again. It's actually pretty good because you've got the sour plum, but it's also kind of compensated for with the with the honey that's in it. Mm-hmm. It's actually much better than I thought it would. How, how about you? What are you drinking? I, interesting, you say that. I have uh, also a plum drink, but it's an actual plum drink. It's a, a fruit soda, Mitsuya plum. Sounds good. Yeah. I think last last time I had the, uh, was it melon or something? Yeah. So I think I have, now I have like just a different flavor that I saw at the store. I saw the plum. So I was like, all right, let me get that. Nice. Yeah. I think I saw the same thing that we were drinking last time, but um, I think it was orange or something at the store earlier today, but um, but decided to go with this and to give soda a break for one episode. Okay. This one, it says, uh, limited reproduction of Mitsuya fruit soda plum sold in 1974. So maybe I'm holding on to a relic right here. (laughs) Yeah. You you get the taste of Japan from, what, 50 years ago? Yeah. The Showa era. Tastes quite good. Uh, Yeah, it tastes tastes like plum. Uh, (laughs) Of course, you know, it's carbonated, so there's that. I wish they would would do away with the carbonation because I'd rather have the... The taste unimpeded by the stinging of the carbon bubbles. That's I think that's why I hate seltzer seltzer so much because it's like you kind of want to drink water, yeah. But instead, you get like these little stings on your tongue because of the carbon, because <laughs> of the bubbles, and you're like, oh, what is this? I feel like it gets in the way of the taste. Probably why I'm not a big fan, uh, and probably why I love that flavored water so much, like the ones I had on previous shows, like the grape ones and the. Oh, yeah. Those those taste very good, but I feel like the moment you start sticking in an extra element, it <laughs> starts messing with it. I, th- I feel the same thing for spicy food. I know people will disagree with me here, and that's fine. But I don't I don't like spicy food for that reason because it's like, well, they eat it for spice, right? And yeah, I'm yeah. I'm eating it. Oh, I, I kind of want the taste. So the spice <laughs> is getting in the, between. The spice is the taste. <laughs> yeah, but it's like if you have something else in there, but the spice is getting in the way. That's how I tend to see it, you know? You're trying to enjoy the flavor, but the spice keeps stinging your tongue. You're like, Jesus Christ, what is this? It's, it's interesting that you say that, though, because um, I, I like soda. I don't mind carbonation. And I also um, like spicy food, unless it's super spicy. I, I don't think I'm very tolerant to spicy stuff, but um, to, to an extent, I like it. Yeah. But um, but stuff like noodles and, and things like that, I, I like them pretty simple. We know, we know, I guess, like, you, you know, udon and soba and stuff like that, the Japanese noodles. Yeah. I prefer them um, completely plain rather than with I don't know chicken or whatever inside because I, I just like the taste of the noodles and of the of the soup. I, yeah. I just don't want anything else to be in the way of that taste. Yeah, so I can kind of understand. Oh uh, well, yeah, that's the thing. I know I'm missing the fact that people eat spicy food for the spiciness and the effect of, it has on them. <laughs> and it's I guess it's the effect I don't like, and it's the effect that gets in between me and the taste. Even though yeah. for them, that is the taste, yeah. So, 
But other than that, I, I, the drink is good. So we covered the most important topic of today, the drinks. What are we talking about next? Um, yeah, so with, with the new year here, um, we've done a quick review of, of what we've done last year at the end of last year, I guess. Yeah. But uh, one thing that we didn't talk about too extensively, even though we talked about um, about it kind of throughout the, the entire podcast, um, throughout many of the episodes, is um, what were some of our favorite books in 2020? So um, hmm. I guess we decided to pick um, five each. Five yeah. or six each, and um, we'll kind of go through them one one by one, and um, yeah, and talk about why we enjoyed the book or or why we think it was important to read it, or um, mm. whether we recommend the listeners to read it or not. Did you have any like goals of, as to how many books you wanted to read in twenty twenty? Did you have like a specific number? Oh, that's a good question. Um, not really a specific number, but I guess um, for a part of the year, I was just trying to read for thirty minutes every day, um, and unfortunately, I kind of fell out of that habit. But um, over the last week or so, I kind of regained it because I started reading and finished reading uh, Bad Blood about mm-hmm. Theranos or whatever the company was, called, whatever it is pronounced. Um, I'm sure you heard about the company. I definitely recommend reading the book, but uh, but I think that's more for the 2021 episode of mm-hmm. of our favorite books. So um, how about you? Did you have any book-related goals in terms of how much you wanted to read? or No, not, not at all. Uh, I had no goals and... As such, I kind of, I think I didn't read too much. I was kind of um, bouncing back and forth. I finished some books, but also I have quite a bit of books that I bought that I didn't get through, or uh, I think I have one that I didn't touch. So I guess like I was, I don't know, I was a picky eater, not a picky eater. (laughs) I was a fussy reader is what I would rather say for the year 2020. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, for, for me, it was like I had periods where I didn't read at all. And then I had periods where I kind of read read a decent amount. And I guess I'd like to try to stick with the reading a decent amount consistently over the entire year. It didn't work out last year. How come? Maybe. I don't know. I guess, um, um, I guess part of it is just focusing on other things, things whether it's um, client projects or just building my size and things like that. Hmm. Um, part of it is just me being lazy. No, nothing wrong with being lazy sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, no, no excuses. I, I think I definitely had the time to actually read for 30, 40 minutes a day. It just, I didn't make it a priority. So yeah, I, I should. Well, we'll catch up with that in the next episode and see how you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Got to hold me accountable. Okay. I'll ask you next, next time. <laughs> you want to jump into the books? Like the books that we liked and I guess we're willing to stick them on, on the top of the list. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think we'll each go for five books or so. Um, we'll al- alternate between yourself and, and myself. Um, you want to start with the first one? All right. So there was the Fallacy Detective book, which we talked about, I think, in episode 31. And you can go back to episode 31 and listen to it. But I'll just summarize it real quick. Long story short, a fallacy is a bad argument. If you ever hear something and your brain is like, hold on, <laughs> what? That doesn't make sense. You probably, yeah. maybe you're listening to a fallacy. Who knows? But basically, the whole point of that book is to equip you with, uh, I don't know, like 20, 30, 35, 40 uh, fallacies that are common in everyday speech, whether it's not not just speech, commercials, political political speeches, regular conversations, arguments with people. You can always spot these. And that's how you kind of know that you're dealing with someone who's not exactly arguing from a good place or they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And I... I guess I really like this book because it was half kind of explaining the rule and half a workbook that you have to go through questions and mark, you know, which one is a fallacy, which one is another fallacy. You know, for example, there's a 
some of the common ones were straw man. Let me open the book. <laughs> there was straw man. There was part to hold. There was hold to part. There was equivocation, ad hominem, special pleading, red herring. And, you know, it was just fun to go through it and be like, oh, yeah, I heard something like this in, you know, from somewhere. And now I know, now I know why that argument didn't sound as good to me in the past because yeah. there's a whole fallacy about it here. Uh, so I liked it. I highly recommend it. Uh, this is like one of the few books that I've finished in 2020. I started in 2020. I finished towards the end. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's a really important topic and, and something that uh, everybody should spend at least some time learning about. Um, both these fallacies and I also think I'm kind of behavioral economy is kind of similar field. Like just, just learning about all the irrational decisions that we're making and that we fall prey to. Yeah. I think it can help you live a better life. So um, so what was your favorite fallacy or what is your favorite fallacy? Favorite fallacy. And it's why? funny. Be, be, all right. That's a good question. The one thing I, I was wondering that the book doesn't really list all of them. Because for example, there's the apples to oranges fallacy. A lot of the time people are comparing something that can't be compared. Yeah. They're making false comparisons. There's also conflation where, you know, I think conflation is also kind of similar because it's like you're trying to lump two things into one, but in reality, they are unrelated. From the book, my favorite ones are, I guess, the most common ones, which are straw man and red herrings. Like a straw man is when someone uh, reshapes your argument or what you say into something that be, can be easier to attack. Yeah. For example, you know, a mom yells at her son, like, stop playing video games. And the son is like, oh, so I, I invested $1,000 into this video game collection. And you just want it to go to waste? It's like, that's not what she was saying. He's avoiding the question. He's avoiding the main point. And this is, you know, you kind of hear this often. And the other one is the red herring. The red herring is like when someone sticks in something that's completely unrelated to the main argument. And you can kind of also see that in um, arguments where you're like, where they put up a issue and you reply to that issue. But then you're like, but what about this? But what about that? And they just keep kind of pushing it along without yeah. ever addressing if you were ever right about the first thing that they, they point, you know, pointed out. It's also, you know, it's also can be called, I mean, on a different angle, it could also be whataboutism, but they're still sticking things that are unrelated to the original point. Yeah. So I like them, I guess, because they're common and yeah. you can easily spot them. Well, not easily, actually. Strawmans are, you know, actually, that's the thing. Um, there's a lot of nuance involved in this, so it's it can be easy to miss. And I think, it, I guess that's what also makes it kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I also, yeah. And I think when we were talking about this the last time, we were talking about um, appeal to authority. What yeah. was it called? Like, yeah. And actually, when I was reading Bad Blood, the book about Theranos, it was uh, it, it was crazy how far that can go. Like when you take somebody's name and kind of use it to use it as a, I guess, as a proof of what you're doing. Because like this company seemed all perfect, right? And it's got all the right people on the board, at least from the outside. Kind of they had like people from this uh, from the Department of Dep Defense and. Um, um, what's his name? Jim Mattis. Mm -hmm. he, was he the defense secret secretary and the Trump and, and all these high profile people that just kind of fell victim to the, the I guess they just got fooled by the founder of the company. Mm -hmm. But then that founder could just use all of those names and like, yeah, we've got this guy, we've got that guy. And also the same with press coverage nowadays, right? It's like there are so many stories on like the New York Times or all these big, big, big publications that are much easier to get than most people think. And then and then it's just easy to go like, Oh, New York Times wrote about us, or Forbes wrote about us. Hmm. Uh, Fortune Magazine wrote about us. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's exactly why the book that you just mentioned is really important. Like all these sort of things are just happening around everybody every day. 
And I think being able to spot them is uh, one fun, but two also really important. Yeah. To kind of know what's really going on. And also hard because sometimes you will miss it. Yeah. And then later on you in your head, you're like, oh, hold on. That didn't sound right. Yeah, exactly. So that's my number one. What about you? Yeah. So for me, um, I, I guess I don't have them in any really particular order. They're all really good, I think. And I really enjoyed them. But um, the first one I have on the list is The Ride of Lifetime. It's by um, Bob Iger, who used to be the CEO of Disney for, for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you know, um, I go to Disneyland um, fairly often. <laughs> She's a fan. And um, yeah, and I think what they're doing is pretty amazing, um, whether it's through the theme parks or through the um, content that they're putting out. I just find it really fascinating how um, how you can take some IP, the Mickey Mouse or Winnie the Pooh or, or whatever character, and just turn it into so many different things, right? Like you turn it into music, you turn it into movies, you turn it into drama. I mean, you turn it into um, animation, you turn it into theme park attractions, into mm. like hundreds of different kinds of merchandise. And, and, and I, I just think it's like, Disney is definitely one of those cases where it, like you see an idea essentially taken out of thin air or, or just a made up story. And then they build this whole universe around it. So, so I think that's, that's really fascinating. And, and reading about somebody who's been leading the company for, for so long has been really um, entertaining, but also um, contain, I think, a lot of business wisdom. And, and, and it was just a fascinating life to, to read about. Because, um, yeah, th- this guy started his life at um, at ABC, I think. His... The news channel? Yeah, the, the news channel. And then um, ABC and Disney merged at some point, And he kind of worked his way through the ranks all the way to the CEO of Disney. So, so um, yeah, I think even for him, it was an interesting career because essentially he started working for a news channel or a sports channel. Or, 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 I, I, or... I guess it's just a television network. Yeah, exactly. For, for a television network. And he ended up being the head of like theme parks and a huge licensing operation and, and essentially being like a Hollywood executive in a way. Mm. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. And, and, and I think there was a lot of good stories about um, just business stories. Like he was, um, he was overseeing um, acquisitions of Marvel and Lucasfilm mm-hmm. for Disney and things like that. Um, opening of Disneyland in Shanghai. So uh, yeah, there was a lot of cool stories about how things were working at the company and, and, um, and it was kind of interesting to see inside his thinking process of how he was making some of the decisions. Hmm. Any specific takeaways or things that stuck with you? Yeah, I think, I guess one of them is um, just focus on what, whatever the task at hand is. Like, for example, when he was opening, um, when he was in China for the opening of Disneyland Shanghai, mm-hmm. um, back in Florida, where they have another park, um, there were the Orlando shootings that I'm sure most people heard about. Hmm. Yeah. Right. And it, it was um, like, I, I guess his first questions were like, was there any of our staff involved? Did anybody get hurt that works at Disney Orlando and, and things like that? Mm-hmm. But, uh, but there really was nothing he could do from, from China. So, so he just sent the right person <clears throat> to deal with the job back into Florida to, to deal with it. And he kind of um, just stayed focused on what, what was the best thing that he could have been doing at the time, which was making sure the opening of Disneyland China or Disneyland um, Shanghai goes as well as possible. Hmm. Um, also, there was this story when he was, um, when he was, I guess, interviewing with the board for the position of the CEO at some point in his career. And, and um, like he had this coach or, or some guy that he knew that was kind of coaching him through the process. And he asked him, like, what are your priorities when you, when you take over as a CEO, you kind of have to present it to the board and you have to be convincing. And then he started listing like five, six different things. And the guy goes like, you only get three. 
and I think that that's a really, I, I think that's a really important thing that um, pretty much everybody that's working on any sort of thing should keep in mind. It's like when you talk with people that that start companies and uh, that run companies, mm-hmm. like oftentimes they have big dreams and big visions, which is great. But I think also at any given single point in time, you can only you can only focus on so many things. Mm-hmm. And like if if you talk to somebody and and that somebody tells you that they want to I don't know. They want to make candies, but they also want to make um, chocolate. They also want to make alcohol. They also want to make soda or whatever. Like, you know, they're, they're probably not going to make much at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if somebody tells you, yeah, our primary focus now is to make candies and we're going to make strawberry and, I don't know, raspberry and blueberry candies, then, then they're probably going to succeed because they have clear focus. Yeah. And it's easier to do one thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so that was a good story. And, and the... Other one, I guess that's worth mentioning, is when he was trying to acquire Pixar um, from from Steve Jobs, I guess, for a large part. Mm. Um, th- there was a time when um, when Jobs went on him silent for like weeks or, or months, I think even. And and really the only thing that he could do was wait, wait, and wait. Mm. Like he, he could have kept calling, but that would probably have just pushed him away and, and mm. they fall through. So, so I think that was a good illustration of just being patient and, and like, of not doing something being sometimes the best strategy. Yeah. But but yeah, the, the book is full of stories that are, I think, really good illustrations of um, different kind of situations you can find yourself in. So so I definitely recommend it a lot. Sounds pretty good. So The Ride of a Lifetime by, by Bob Iger, right? Yeah. Nice. I, I think it's something I would want to read eventually once, once I get through all the books that I've <laughs> uh, bought. Or yeah, it's, it's a really good book. Yeah. So, what's your next? Uh, looking so, like looking back at 2020, like I've read through a bit. I've, I think, I bought and downloaded also on my Kindle quite a bit that I never really got through. So, I'm kind of like working through a very small list because <laughs> I think I finished quite not not that much. So, I'm grasping here. So, there was also the Tao of Pooh that I, you also read, right? Yeah. That's just uh, that was a very good book. That was just a book about Taoism from the eyes or the lens of Winnie the Pooh. I haven't touched it in like a good, I think since we last talked about it in maybe May or June. How would you, how would you describe it, Keishi? Um Yeah, I, I think it just uh, like, like it illustrates that sometimes not trying hard is, mm. is the best course of action, I guess. Yeah. Like you see these people that try hard to, to do something, but oftentimes they're, they'd be much better off if they kind of let things just evolve in the natural way, I guess. Yeah. Without trying too hard. It's like you you just said that earlier, you know, sometimes the best thing to do is not to do anything and let it play itself out, you know? Yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. Like like if, if Iger was in, in Shanghai and, and this Orlando shooting happened and the first thing that he did was jump on a plane and fly to Orlando without even knowing what he was going to do there, it's like he might have felt like he was doing the right thing, but at the same time, like like what would be the point to, to screw up the opening of Disney Shanghai? And also to not be helpful at all on the other side. Yeah. And, and, and it's things like that where I think, yeah, just letting things go through their natural course. Not trying to run too hard after things. Yeah. And, 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 and do and the best over, you can. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not do, overthinking, I guess. Yeah. Like do the best you can. And when you've, there's only so much you can do. And once you've done the best that you can, then it's like, take a pause and let the rest uh, take over. There was, one, I think there was one line. I'm trying to look for it because I don't remember where, where it was. Maybe I should have earmarked the page, but it's a, it's also on intelligence where they talk about Eeyore. No, actually it wasn't Eeyore, it was Rabbit. They were talking about Rabbit and like, you know, 
they say like rabbit has a lot of brain like yes he does and rabbit thinks too much yes he does that must be and that must be why rabbit really gets nothing done to something to that extent yeah yeah i've got it rabbit's clever said food thoughtfully yes said piglet rabbit's clever and he has a brain yes said piglet rabbit has a brain there was a long silence i suppose said Pooh. that's why he never understands anything yeah because rabbit's the type of guy to overthink things and delve into the details where sometimes it's not the best thing to do. Yeah, I was just actually reading through some of my highlights yesterday in, in the book. And like, I, I think this this pretty much summarizes it, it really well. It's a quote. It's a bit long, but I'll read it through. Okay. It goes, uh, when you work with Wu Wei, you put the round peg in the round hole and the square peg in the square hole. No stress, no struggle. Egotistical desire tries to force the round peg into the square hole and the square peg into the round hole. Cleverness tries to devise craftier ways of making pegs fit where they don't belong. Knowledge tries to figure out why round pegs fit round holes, but not square ones. Wu Wei doesn't try. It doesn't think about it. It just does. Yeah. So I, I think you can explain this book much better than me because I didn't highlight it. Didn't take any notes. Or I didn't. Overall, I think, think if, if the listener, if you're on the anxious side, as I am, for example, it kind of helps you in like calming down about things. For example, whether it's your work or whatever else that you're chasing, whether it's a side hustle, for example, you know, because again, there's only so much work that you can do. And then there's a point to where you overdo things where it's not necessary anymore. Also, like, you know, going back to working out, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do in a day and you should definitely take a rest because it's in the rest where the rest of the progress comes and at the same time you can't really overthink things you can't be thinking what's the best way to do this what if you know you can't really worry too much about things sometimes it's much better to just trust the process and do the work and then sure you can come back and evaluate and be like all right this didn't work that didn't work i can fix this but in in the midst of it you have to be present you can't really let that bog you down yeah yeah i, I think it's pretty much about trusting your gut and not overthinking yeah yeah because because there was also this passage where um i think who wanted to go and meet his friends or something hmm. and and one of the other characters asked him like oh why do you want to go it's it's not a birthday or, or something like that there's there's no reason to go yeah and it's it's thursday and Pooh's like yeah it's thursday let's go and wish everybody happy thursday yeah so it's like just enjoy your life not over don't overthink things i'm going to reread this book because you have you're doing a better job at uh explaining it than i am <laughs> long story short the tao of Pooh is a uh, taoism through the eyes of Pooh. And Taoism is a, it's an ancient Chinese philosophy where there is something called the way or Tao, the Tao. And however you want to put it, you know, it's the way of nature. And getting in the way of nature usually does more harm than good. I highly recommend the book. It can be framed as that airy, vague philosophy, self-help type of stuff, which I tend to try to avoid. I mean, they really do paint a good picture in the case of Pooh. I think it does help you readjust your approach to things, whether how you work or whatever projects you're working on, whatever things that you're doing and you're getting impatient about, you know, sometimes it's just better to slow down and stop and just do the best you can and let the rest sort itself out. Yeah, I think reading for things like that every now and then, it's just like, it's not necessarily for the, necessary for the book to teach you anything. I think it's more about you read a passage and then, you're, then you remember what you, did in, what you did last week or what you didn't do last week. And it kind of helps you reshuffle priorities and, and kind of shift your focus and, and make sure you're doing the things that you should be. Definitely on my re- reread list. I think this is one of these books that I probably come back to every now and then. All right. What about you? What's next on your list? 
All right. Yeah. Next one's um, Profit First by Mike Nikolovich um, or whatever his name is pronounced. I'm sorry if I mispronounced it. Um, I talked about this book pretty extensively on the, the 2020 progress and 2021 goals episode because um, mm. this is one of the books that actually is pretty actionable and, and I actually want to implement the system over the next few weeks. And essentially it's, I guess in a way it's an accounting book, in a way it's, it's an entrepreneurship book, but what it's talking about is, and I think we both kind of think in similar terms, but like when we have, let's say our blocks, right? We want to take part of the money and reinvest it back into the block. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I think there's there's a case to be made that you should just be taking all of the money and reinvest it back because um, maybe you don't want to pay the taxes mm-hmm. and you want to grow the business as fast as possible and um, and um, and maybe you don't need the money at the time. Like for example, in my case, pretty much all of my living and things like that are covered with my consulting um, mm-hmm. income. So everything that I make from from my blogs, I can kind of reinvest back if I want it, which which is what I was trying to do for for a while. But then what this book argues is that it shouldn't be that way. And what it argues is that usually the, the equation for accounting is um, revenues minus expenses equals profit, right? So you make $100,000 in revenues, you spend $40,000 on computers and, um, I don't know, writers and tools and things, and you are left with $60,000 in profit. Hmm. But what he's saying is you should first decide the profit and then adjust the expenses to meet whatever is left over. So I guess he's arguing that the equation should be revenue minus profit is expenses. And revenue revenue minus profit is expenses. Yeah, so it's it's kind of just flipped around. It's, it's mm. But I, I guess the reason for that is um, like for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's easy to get stuck in the, I want to grow my business, I want to grow my business, I want to grow my business, where they're pumping all the money back into the business, but they're not, one, enjoying any of that. Mm. Two, they're underpaid. And, um, and three, there's really no exit point, right? It's like, you want to grow it, grow it, grow it, grow it, but but what's the exit point? Hmm. And I think a lot of people don't know the answer. Whereas with hmm. this approach, it's like essentially like what, what this um, book is arguing is that um, let, let's say you can, let's say you're making fifty thousand dollars in revenues and spending fifty thousand dollars reinvesting it back into the business on 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 growing it. Like if you can do it with fifty thousand, then you probably can do it with forty five thousand as well, right? So why not take a certain percentage as a profit first and use it for Maybe you want to save or maybe you want to go on a vacation or you want to go on a, for a nice dinner or whatever it is, but just want to enjoy the fruits of your labor, I guess, mm-hmm. is one reason. Um, two, I, and I think in my case, that's probably the most important one is um, like with some businesses, they are pretty volatile, I guess. And like you never know when things will go wrong because even the best entrepreneur can think that he'll be doing fine forever, but there might come a time when when the tide changes and, and things turn around and, and he or she gets into trouble, right? Hmm. So I think it's also sort of an um, insurance policy. Like in my case, what I want to do is essentially take out part of the money out of the content business and put it into more traditional investments, right? That will that will probably grow slower, but but also are um, arguably less riskier. Um, yeah, so um, I, I guess for anybody that's running any sort of business or side hustle that's that's of a reasonable scale, or that's even starting out. I think it's a it's a worthwhile read that will that, that gives a really good framework on how to um, deal with your business's finances and mm-hmm. how to make sure that you're not just pumping them all back into the business that will either eventually die or that, that you will keep growing forever. Yeah. Um. And that you're that you're just cashing in on the on the value that you build gradually. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, it would be you know a bit a bit wasteful if you know you earn X, but all of X goes back into the business, and then let's say the business takes a downturn. 
And ultimately, what, what did you really get out of it? You put in a lot of work. The money that you put in, you put back in. And there is not much savings or enjoyment out of it. Exactly. Like, let's say you were running a, let's say we're running a travel agency for five years from 2014 to 2019, right? And you made it really profitable and it was growing, 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 growing. And you were putting all the money back into the company and it was growing. And suddenly 2020 came around, March 2020, and all of that is gone in, a, in an instant, right? Hmm. Like, I, I think you would have been better off if you just took, I don't know, 10, 15%, 5% of whatever you were making and kept it as profit rather than trying to maximize growth at all costs. Yeah. That's, that sounds definitely like an interesting way to look at it. Um, for most cases, people tend to see as profit as something to take in last. Exactly. And uh, yeah, and I, I think the essentially the, the system is that you set up five accounts and one is like the income where all the revenues go. And then there's like um, the profit, the owner's compensation, which is your salary for the work that you do. And then the profit is actually your reward for the ownership, for taking the risk, I guess. And then there's like taxes, um, um operating expenses and, and, and maybe one more. But um, anyways, yeah, ha having the profit separated and having the, um, the taxes separated, I think makes it much psychologically much easier to take the profit because you don't feel like you're, Agreed. you're, you're going to look part of it to taxes when, when the taxes are completely separated. I, I do this. Uh, so every time I get the earnings, I take X percent, I subtract it out and I send it to an account that's specifically to pay taxes. Yeah. And then I send the rest, you know, to my other account. And that yeah. way, yeah, like you said, it's psychologically easier. I don't have to worry about, will I have money? Because the thing is with taxes, you're always paying for the past in a way. Exactly. And so, but if you haven't started saving in the past for that future upcoming thing, you're going to be in some trouble. So it's always to have that you know, separation and do it ahead of time. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just realizing that um, a portion of the money that comes to you is not really your money. You're just you're just taking care of it on behalf of the government for, for the next seven, eight, nine, ten months. Yeah, re recommend it to anybody that's running or planning to run a business. So how about your number three? This book I struggled with, but I think it's still worthy to be um, on the top. Or uh, It's called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. And essentially, it's a collection of essays from Carl Sagan on... Uh, Science versus pseudoscience. It's oh wait, let me check when this book was published because it's funny how timely this stuff is now. <laughs> Again, this kind of goes into what we talked about with uh, logical fallacies and being able to discern BS from fact. Yeah. Well, yeah. Copyright nineteen ninety six by Carl Sagan, published in the U.S. by Ballantine Books. Okay. And basically, the, you know, there, there's numerous chapters where he takes on UFOs, takes on witchcraft, science. For example, chapter 24 is science versus witchcraft. Chapter 25, real patriots, real patriots ask questions. Chapter 17, the marriage of skepticism and wonder. Aliens, chapter 4, the man on the moon and the face on Mars. So it's a collection of essays. The man on the moon and the face on Mars is like, if you Google like the face on Mars, you'll get a picture of like a mountain on Mars and the mountain on the moon that kind of resemble a human face. And because us humans are so good at connecting patterns and spotting patterns and comparing yeah. similarities with things, we think that, that, you know, that was a, that is an actual face. And as such, it must've been placed there by, uh, aliens, you know? <laughs> so we jump to such conclusions, whereas we haven't really looked into what it actually is and how it actually could have been formed. Yeah. So this is, I guess the goal of the book was to introduce science and skepticism 
to the mass population. Uh, drop in a few lines that I underlined in the book that I thought were interesting just yeah. to kind of give you um, understanding where he's going. So, you know, science is far from a perfect instru instrument of knowledge. It's just the best we have. In this respect, as in many others, it's like democracy. Science by itself cannot advocate courses of human action, but it can certainly illuminate the possible consequences of alternative courses of action. Another one, one of the reasons for its success is that science has built in error-correcting machinery at its very heart. Some may consider this overbroad characterization, but to me, every time we exercise self-criticism, every time we test our ideas against the outside world, we are doing science. In his book, Abductions, Mack explicitly proposes the very dangerous doctrine that, quote, the power or intensity with which something is felt is a guide to whatever is true. He writes, Carl Sagan writes, I can personally attest to the emotional power, but aren't powerful emotions a routine component of our dreams? Don't we sometimes awaken stark terror? Doesn't Mack himself, the author of the book of Nightmares, know about the emotional power of hallucinations? And this is a chapter on, uh, I think it was alien abductions and therapy. So basically it's bringing in Carl Sagan and just like, you know, not ripping, not exactly ripping those beliefs to shreds, yeah. but attempting to give you a more scientific approach, a more scientific view as to how to approach these things. Not exactly an easy read. Another one, humans may crave absolute certainty. They may aspire to it. They may pretend as partisans of a certain of certain religions do to have attained it. But the history of science, by far the most successful claim to knowledge accessible to humans, teaches that mo the most we can hope for is successive improvement in our understanding, learning from our mistakes, an asymptotic approach to the universe, but with the provision that absolute certainty will always elude us. We will always be mired in error. Final uh, word of note, quote, my parents were not scientists. They knew almost nothing about science, but in introducing me simultaneously to skepticism and to wonder, they taught me the two uneasily cohabiting modes of thought that are central to the scientific method. So this line for me is particularly interesting because I think mo it's very hard for people to maintain two opposing thoughts in their head, yeah. such as skepticism and wonder. Usually we can be completely skeptical and we can be completely skeptical about everything around us, even, you know, things that have been proven over and over and over in repeated tests. Yeah. Or we can skew to the other side and just be filled with wonder and amazement and be easily gullible. But it's the ability to marry these two concepts together in your head that I think it's very hard to do because they're on the opposite poles, essentially. But yeah. I think that that's where it's important to be. And yeah. this is a hard book. I think I'm not smart enough for it yet. And I will have to reread it eventually. I get the gist of it. But it's definitely something that is not uh, easily read in a weekend, <laughs> let alone a month. Yeah. Well, we'll do the 2021 episode about our favorite books. We can certainly revisit this one. Yeah. Overall, I can recommend it if you have the time and the brain for it. Brain, I mean, like, it's a... Uh, it's not an easy read, but it's a fun read. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I was uh, reading an article by Ryan Holiday yesterday. Um, I think you read some of his books. I, I haven't actually, but um, yeah. But he, he was talking about how to read difficult books. Hmm. And like a couple of things he was talking about was like, um, spoil the ending, which I think is pretty good. Just read about all the different reviews and read about what people thought about it and read about what Wikipedia says about the topic, about the book, hmm. and kind of go into a book knowing what it is about. Because then you mm. can kind of form your own opinion about it. 
rather than spending energy trying to actually understand what what the author was trying to say and and what the main I guess point is. Yeah. So, so I was kind of um, thinking of trying that with some books later this year if I ever encounter something. I actually, you know, would do that with movies like uh, with Interstellar. I would read an analysis and reviews of it afterwards just to gain a better understanding. But that's a good yeah. idea. I didn't really think about reading it for this specific book, but it definitely helps you understand, you know, when someone breaks it down in a much more simpler manner. Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, I, I found this to be the case with some books as well when, when reading them, but um, it, it's pretty easy to get lost between the pages. You're trying to consume these 300 pages and like at some point things start to blend together and like the connections get lost and things like that, I think. Yeah. Especially with difficult books. Yeah. Yeah, I think that might approach. I think that's definitely the case with um, any type of science reading that I've undertaken. At some point, you kind of get it, you kind of get it, and then maybe you'll kind of skim over one key element and you move on. And because you missed that key element or you just not, you don't understand it well enough, the rest of it becomes like really hard to understand. Yeah. I mean, I, I would still put this book as like uh, probably the more useful and the more interesting reads I've had in uh, 2020. It just, as you can see, it's it's uh, not something you can do over the weekend or over a month and requires a lot of brain power. Yeah, definitely. On the opposite end, my marketing books are a lot easier than this. <laughs> All right. How about you? Yeah. So actually, um, I'm going to go out of order here because I think what you mentioned there about it being really important to hold um, kind of two opposing views in your mind mm. at the same time and it being difficult for, for a lot of people to do. Yeah. Uh, the next book I'm going to mention because of that is Origin Story by... Uh, by David Christian. It, his last name is actually interesting considering what the book is about. Mm. But uh, it's essentially a look, I guess, a quick run through the history of humanity or, or of everything, I guess, as, as the cover says, um, that essentially ties all the things in the present back all the way to like Big Bang. So like how there was the Big Bang, how the initial elements formed and how they combined into more elements and how planets formed, how stars formed and things like that. Mm -hmm. And then how life on earth formed like first it was small organisms and then it grew bigger 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 but then it um but then it went smaller again um mm -hmm. but but anyways yeah um i, I th one the, the book is really interesting and um, informative i think it gives a good overview of kind of um what the world is about like, um okay but i guess to, to me the most fascinating thing is like it just puts things into perspective because um like when you look at at us as part of the huge universe it's like we're nothing right we're, we're just this small piece that's been around for the last like in even though it's been a long long time like if you look at the grand scale of thing it's like we've been here for one hour let's say right if, if you take yeah. the history of the entire planet so, so on one hand we're really unimportant and really like just this blip on the radar of this entire history of the universe but at the same time it's like what we've achieved in the last 2000 years it's 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 pretty remarkable right like the way we learn to use different types of energy and um, and to communicate information and and essentially those two things are responsible for all all the growth and all the developments that we've done right and mm -hmm. uh, and if you look at it on that scale then then it's really f fascinating as well because then you're like oh we're we're pretty amazing yeah so um, yeah and I, I think one of the examples here would probably like um, let's say global warming right I think it's pretty clear that that our actions are causing it to accelerate. Um, and that's really important for us. But if you look at it from the scale of the entire universe, it's like it doesn't care. And also probably the planet doesn't care, which is fine. But at the same time, we care. And and um, the, the only ones that will um, 
that, that will face issues if, if we keep if we let this go on. It's it's just ourselves, right? So I, I think it's nice to say things like things like we're doing it for the planet or we're doing it for whatever. But at the end of the day, I think we're doing it for ourselves, which again, which which I think is good. But at the same time, that's that's in our microscopic universe. Like mm. like in the grand scheme of things, I don't think anything cares. The universe doesn't care. The the solar system doesn't care. I don't think think the planet cares. It it just does that. Yeah. So so I think um yeah I, I think it's really just um like if you want an introduction into I guess everything I think it's a really good book. What about you mentioned on the point of uh, maintaining two opposing thoughts in your head or two contrasting thoughts? Yeah. So 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 that's what I was kind of, kind of thinking is just um you kind of gotta realize like like I was talking about this um this environmental thing right it's like you gotta realize that you can definitely fight for it right and and I think it's the right thing to do. At the same time, don't think you're saving the planet or you're whatever. You're, you're saving yourself, I think, and and the future of humanity. You're not necessarily saving the planet because I, I don't think the planet cares. No, well, no don't I, get me wrong. I don't think it's good to destroy the planet. I don't think we should be destroying it or or, or whatever. I just think we need to know why we're doing it. Yeah, self-preservation. Yeah, exactly. It sounds like a bit a bit of an easier read than, <laughs> than my my other book. Yeah, it, it definitely is. That book is a collection of essays. It's not exactly like a linear thing from zero to 100 yeah i think that's why i have like a bit of a hard time like going through all of it the book summarizes just like you know carl sagan takes on pseudoscience with uh, various essays taking on how to you know how common humans view things versus how they can be and should be viewed and you know why science is important in society yeah that's the book under you know like summarized like two two or three sentences but like it's just much more complex than that and i think that's why i was like just having a hard time like (laughs) just trying to explain the whole thing because every essay you know stand on stands on its own merit it's a collection of essays yeah all right so um next up well next up is uh also kind of similar in terms of a collection of essays the next book is called the warrior within by bruce lee Somewhat related to Taoism in terms of Winnie the Pooh, but I only want to touch upon one thing that has always kind of sat in my mind after reading this. Like, there's a lot of powerful concepts here that were taken from Taoism and everywhere else. Bruce came up with Jeet Kune Do, right? What is that? So basically, Bruce Lee's philosophy of martial arts, but the whole point was you take what works and discard what doesn't work. So it's like a mix of all kinds of things. So it was probably the precursor or the grandfather to MMA. Nowadays, you have mixed martial arts. And yeah. the whole point was, uh, you know, if, you, if you're just practicing patterned martial arts, like in karate, you can get your butt kicked when someone's like outside of your style. And at the same yeah. time, if a boxer goes down on the ground, the boxer is not going to be able to uh, hold his own with a wrestler. Yeah. I guess he also wanted not to have this be called anything. And he, I think he settled upon the name because I guess you have to kind of settle upon the name. And he, he never wanted to bind himself to like any one specific martial art. Yeah. So where I'm going with this is like, it's a very powerful idea. So you take what works from other things and you s- discard what doesn't work. And it always made me think of like, for example, economic and political systems. We, we take a look, you know, like, for example, if you mentioned X, you mentioned Y. One will have a seemingly good connotation. One will have a seemingly bad connotation. But within all of them, like, but the fact is you're still kind of diddling with really large over-encompassing labels. But inside these large over-encompassing labels, there's probably some good stuff and there's probably some bad stuff. So there's some things you can take out. And I think that's one thing that always kind of 
sat with me. Like, for example, if we talk about capitalism, we can think about there's a lot of great aspects to capitalism. We can also think about, you know, there's lots of not so great aspects to capitalism. And there's similarly, there's like aspects that you can borrow from other sides that you can stick in. So I, I, it's the whole concept of trying to work with labels that kind of gets in the way of progress. And it's like, yeah. but the, the other point is like, there's always good stuff on the other side that you can pick and choose and drop the bad stuff too. Yeah, I, I love that. Yeah, I'm not summarizing the book at all, but I'm just bringing one thing that really stood out to me. Yeah, no, no, I, I think that's really important because once you start assigning labels to things, then you're kind of putting a box around things and anything that's outside yeah. the box is automatically on the wrong side. On yeah. the outside, naturally, but but yeah, I I think yeah, exactly like you said, um, just trying to mix and match different things and trying to borrow good things from different styles and and things like that. I think that that's a really good philosophy. Yeah, instead so of like, I, instead of branding yourself as a certain label and you know constantly going through life fighting with everyone about which label is best, which I think most people end up doing. And I think also that's a, there's a lot to be said on, you know, the topic of labeling things. Unfortunately, we need labeling, labeling things, you know, in science and classifying and understanding the world around us. But at the same time, these said labels kind of limit us down to uh, whatever the label is anyway. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah, so uh, I'm not really talking about the book in full here, but this is one of the books that I reread again in 2020 after like reading it maybe a few years back. And I think it's something that I would want to reread again. Yeah, I, I think um, I should definitely put the book on my reading list. Um, like, like I said, I, I really think um, what you were just describing there with mixing different things and, and I guess what was Bruce's um, philosophy, in a way, part of it, at least. Mm. I, I think that's definitely a very important thing and, and I wish more people would, uh, would follow it and live by it. Yeah. But yeah, let's uh, to, to jump to the next one. Um, so we had origin story, we had profit first, the right of a lifetime on my side. So mm-hmm. let's go to number four and um, let's go with Snowball by Alice Schroeder. And this is a biography of um, Warren Buffett. And, and again, I think it's one of the books that we mentioned on this podcast um, early last year. But um, th- this is a book that's about 700 pages or so long, I think. And it's been sitting on my shelf for literally more than half a decade, I think. I think I bought it back in university and uh, I never actually ended up reading more than a couple of pages. Mm-hmm. But then last year I was just like, all right, I'm going to plow through it. And um, just reading 30, 40 minutes every day, I went over it um, over a longer period of time. And um, yeah, I, I think it just a, it, it's a really fascinating story of a guy that, um, that just built things from scratch in a way. Um, started very small and over the years, over decades, Things have compounded and he's grown into one of the richest people in the world. And um, he's he's by far the richest um, person to have done so by not building a company or inheriting money, but by um, but by allocating capital, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. as an investor. Um, a, a really great story and, and, and a good story that shows also that um, things actually take a lot of time to compound, but once they do, they just explode. Yeah. And like... Um, he, he he wasn't a billionaire until 56 years old, right? And yeah. from there, over the next couple of decades, he became the richest person in the world. I remember watching or reading somewhere um, how exactly the compounding of his wealth worked. And like for a majority of his life, his wealth didn't exactly push him into the top richest people. Yeah. But like, I guess, in I don't know what the time frame was, but it was a very sh- small time frame where he just shot up. Yeah, e- exactly. And... and- and again, that, that just because of compounding, not, not just the money that he's been investing, but I think also the knowledge and the, and the skills and, and, and just his 
his network and everything compounded, right? It's, it's, it's one thing to compound money, but I think over those decades also, <clears throat> um, a, a lot of other um, intangible things compounded and resulted in, the, in, in where he is now. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that was a good story. And another interesting thing that, that I guess is worth mentioning that, um, that he was talking about and that, that I guess was um, responsible for a considerable part of his um, successes, like he was looking for deals where he could where he could have what he called float. So essentially it was using other people's money to, to make money. Mm-hmm. Let's say you're an insurance company and um, you collect all these premiums from people. You don't have to pay them out for quite a while, if ever, right? Until something happens. So what it, what that allows you to do is take that other people's money, <clears throat> put it in the market, make money on it, buy businesses invested, and and profit from that as well. So you not only get the premiums and the fees that the clients are paying you, but you also have this huge pile of capital that you can allocate and, and turn into more money for yourself. Hmm. And um, yeah, and, and that seems like it was a pretty important part of his success. So I guess the the book is just like a one giant lesson in compounding interest and patience. Yeah, I guess the book is his yeah his story and um, one I, I guess patience is one thing, but also just choosing the right things. And he, he also said something along the lines of you only have to do few things right in your life as long as you don't do too many things wrong. Hmm. And I think that's also kind of the um, some of the lessons from the book. I guess it's just like he would wait for the deals, right? He wouldn't just necessarily rush into a deal just to just to spend money or just to allocate capital. Like he, he wasn't afraid to wait. And I think that's kind of goes back to what we we're talking about with the Tao of Poo, where sometimes doing nothing is the best thing to do. And, and I think um, th- th- that also probably played a crucial role in his life and, and in his successes, like not rushing into deals and, and not feeling pressured as to, to do any deals and things like that. Yeah. Probably saved him a lot of stress too. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like a day trader who's like sitting there and like, getting caught up in the details and the minutia of the day-to-day exactly it's like um like do you really want to be staring at charts all day on your screen this guy probably didn't even have computer for for most of his life and like all he did was read newspapers and hmm. the different lifestyle yeah all right so mm-hmm. um what's your i guess is it number five or yeah is it number five fallacy detective tapu demon haunted world yeah all right um what i like i'm i'm trying to like weigh out certain books that I read and which one, because right now I have factfulness and I enjoyed the book factfulness, but I also kind of pushed myself through it. You know, it's uh, but it, and it's also kind of similar in line to other things that I talked about today, like the fallacy detective and demon haunted world. It's like, yeah. So I don't know if I should continue talking about this stuff because it, it does talk about, you know, like gap instinct, negativity instinct, straight line instinct, fear instinct, all of these things reframed could be fallacies urgency instinct um the urgency instinct is take that and you if you go back to my fallacy book there it's under the propaganda chapter yeah exigency so exigency is a you have to press on the urgency and be like act now sale end soon yeah so essentially i think this book is like another way to view or address the bad ways in which we view life in the world you know there's also the blaming instinct you're always looking for someone to blame the size instinct, fear instinct, that would be like the fear. Um, in, in the propaganda chapter is the appeal to fear. Straight line is when probably you're kind of like drawing, creating false relations between things that aren't directly responsible for each other. Yeah. So yeah. for that reason, I don't want to talk too much about it because it's very much so similar. But I guess I do want to mention the, the book was called The Secret Wisdom of Nature, I think. Yeah. And this one is by Peter Wallabin. 
I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it was very just a very fascinating read about how complicated nature is. For example, you know, if you take out a certain species out of a forest, for example, you know, farmers say if wolves are uh, catching there and eating their chicken, <laughs> so they'll go and hunt down all the wolves in the forest. But what they're not kind of realizing is that the wolves play a, an important role in the balance of that nature. So if there's less wolves, there's going to be more deer. And what happens if there's more deer, there's going to be like uh, the deer are going to eat certain shrubs or tr- grasses along certain places. And if that runs out, then it's going to off, it's going to create another chain reaction. So it's a chain reaction into an unbelievable amount of directions, which is hard to track for the, you know, the A to B simple mind human brain. Yeah. And to me, that was just the most fascinating part as to how complicated all of this is. You know, like you were talking about saving the earth. Um, one point that I think they do mention in the book is, Yes, there is a need to step in. Uh, you know, for example, if a species is on the brink of extinction, there is a, always a need to step in and correct some things. But there's also a need to step away and let nature, because nature is going to work itself, work its way back in anyway. Um, yeah. But again, the most interesting to, part to me was the complexity of it all. Whether it's the trees, whether it's the bugs, whether it's certain bushes, whether it's a salmon, you mess up with any of these things and it goes into a million directions. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. It's, it's kind of like the um, the butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm except like, <laughs> more complicated. Yeah, I, I think this applies both in life, in business, in everything pretty much. is like when you think about making decisions, you kind of think, as you said, linearly. So you think I do A and B happens and C mm-hmm. happens. But what you don't realize is that there is also a lot of collateral damage or what do we want to call it? There's unintended consequences or however you want to call it. It's like every action has like... It's not A, A leads to B and leads to C and leads to D. It's like mm. A leads to B, C, and D at the same time without you actually realizing that there's anything other than B. Yeah. And it's very hard for us to grasp, you know, I think. And that, that's, uh, that's why we are not good at these things. I think so. Because no. in a way, if you think about it, it's like it, it just an, a never-ending chain of events. You do A and it causes B and C and then C causes D and E. And it's like, where does it end? Yeah. So, you know, it's a the big lesson is don't mess with nature. <laughs> but at the same time, they do propose the argument of like, you know, should you step, when should you step in? When should you step out? But yeah, like in terms of like saving endangered species, you should step in. In, in the case of like uh, intrusive species that are coming in to like tip the balance over in their favor, I think you should step in. But when it comes time to like, but there's also time to step out because you have to let nature do its thing anyway. So it's a, it's, it's not an easy explanation. It's like, there's sometimes yes, sometimes no, but for the most part, let nature do its thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I think things that we did ourselves are probably things that are worth fixing if it's possible. Yeah. Because also the origin story book talked about is, but there's no other species that has thrown things as off balance and and changed so many things in the nature as as humans have, obviously. Yeah. And like in a way, I feel like we're we're parasites, right? We're living on this planet. We're using its resources, and we're living off those resources. Yeah. So, so essentially we're parasites. The only good thing about us is that we kind of realize we're parasites and we don't want to be parasites. Well, some of us. Or, Others or are like, oh yeah. yeah, we are the more, we're, we are the smarter, more capable species and thus we deserve this bounty. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, but at, at least there are some people that can kind of realize that. And, and I think that's the only thing that makes us different from, from other parasites, I guess. Because yeah. otherwise, think, like we're just using resources. We need energy, right? And yeah. to get energy, we 
we and every other animal just needs to consume whatever's on the planet. So you need needs to consume, um, I don't know, grass needs to consume meat. Um, plants can get it from sun, of course, and uh, and and we're finally being able to um, to tap into some of those sources. And and I think that's the only thing that that is kind of stopping us from actually going all in and and destroying everything and and just taking every single last piece of resource. Yeah. So I definitely highly recommend this book if you have the time. Uh, definitely should read it just out of the sheer complexity of it all. That's the fun part. There's one thing that kind of struck, well, not from this book, but, but you know, after this one, I had like two books on <laughs> mushrooms. <laughs> and But that was more so partly inspired by reading about nature, partly inspired by Star Trek because of their mycelial network. <laughs> And I was like, because they borrowed some for fiction from reality. And I said, I wanted to sound like, oh, what is this? What's the big deal with mycelium network and it's the fungi network and so, such. But I think the, the, in one of these books, it, it made the statement that, you know, we, if we think about these things, and that's a mistake. For example, we humans will think about things in the frame of economic theory, which is a mistake because we're trying to assess it in our own way. Yeah. Not how the way actually is, how it is. You know, some people might say, you know, capitalism is the survival of the fittest, whereas nature might be a little more closer to symbiosis and like relationships and like things are built on each other. And it's like everything's interrelated. Yeah. So it's, it's much more like I think we, at least with the case of fungi and fungi interacting with other plants and trees, it's much more interrelated, not competing to kill to kill the other guy. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. So one of the books made the argument that it's more of a symbiosis rather than a competition. Yeah. It's more so cooperation. But of course, inside it, there is some competition. One feeds on the other, but they don't kill each other to extinction. Yeah. This makes, you know, again, it also goes back to the point that it's very hard to work with labels at times. <laughs> but I highly recommend this book. And I, you know, I'm looking at uh, Amazon right now, The Inner Life of Animals. That also sounds kind of interesting. Did you mention this book to me, The Hidden Life of Trees? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's okay. That was mushroom. Trees. And trees and animals and nature and complexity. Now I understand why people don't get science or they don't want to go far into it because it is a handful, like going into understanding things and, and also trying to understand things with your own frame of thought. Yeah. And that's also, you know, like a, you're kind of setting yourself up to fail from the start in a way. So, but yeah, I kind of, it is definitely a giant exercise and like critical thinking and just like, it's hard work, but it's also fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, th that's one, one of the things that I was hoping to do more last year and hopefully I'll do more this year is to kind of, um, I guess most of the books that I've been reading have been business books, hmm. whereas I, I want to read more about just science and like, like other subjects just, just to kind of um, expand horizons and because I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned for your business or for life in general just by learning about this, about um, trees, about science, about things that are seemingly unrelated. Yeah. And there's a lot of analogy and parallels you can draw. Yeah. So um, so my last book is, yeah, The Right Stuff. Um, did you read it too or did you just get I, it? I have it and I, I think I went through the first chapter. I, I'm, I'm still trying to get through the Barnum book first. I see. So I, it's on my list. Yeah. So, so this one's... Um, I'm sure a lot of people heard about it, but um, it's the book about um, the beginnings of the U.S. astronaut program, of the U.S. space program, and um, yeah, I, I think this is this kind of um, summarizes it well. It's it says on the back cover, "What is it?" asks Tom Wolfe, who's the who's the author of this book. 
that makes a man willing to sit on top of an enor enormous Roman candle and wait for someone to light the fuse, arrogance, stupidity, bravery, courage, or simply the quality we call the right stuff. And it's just amazing story. Again, I don't think there's any particular lessons that I think are kind of worth drawing out of it or, or whatever. But I think just reading mm -hmm. the stories, it's a story of people that were, like, I, th I think many people don't realize this, but um, right now being an astronaut is a really cool job, right? And, and um, it's been so for a long time. But when the first, um, what was the Mercury 7 astronauts were chosen, mm. like their, um, their, uh, their test pilot colleagues were just thinking that it was a bad job because, again, they, they weren't flying the thing, right? They were, like literally before, before the first seven people went into space, Monkeys went into space in the same rockets, in the same mm. equipment. So they were kind of looked down upon by 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 their former colleagues. But then soon mm. enough, of course, they realized that, that, um, that it's not the test pilots who are at the top of the pyramid anymore, but it's the astronauts. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a really cool story um, that I recommend everybody to read. Or there is also a movie. It's like three hours long or so that I watched. What is it called? Um, the Right Stuff. Um, okay. And that, that was fine too, but uh, but I think reading the book is definitely worth it. It goes into more details. I didn't read much of it, but I think in the first chapter, it was very much so about um, the test pilots, like in, in, I think it was the Air Force yeah, or Navy. And it, essentially, it just went on to just talk about how many of their coworkers, you could say, or however, however they're called, they're just dying left and right. Because yeah, there's so exactly. much crashes going on, like you know, every every single other week it was someone else. Like you know, all the families families would congregate together because it would be like you know the guy who's in the air force or in the navy, the test pilot, and his wife and their family, and they're all living in kind of a, a community, a military community. And every single week or something, someone would just die because their plane crashed. Yeah, exactly. And and it's crazy if you think about it, because really those people knew that the chance that they die is like fifty percent or whatever. And yeah. they still went to their job every day. And to me, that's just incredible. And it's thanks to those people that were, were flying from continent to continent in like 10 hours and, and, and things like that, right? It's, they've, they've contributed to, to scientific prog progress a lot. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing. Like no, no other occupation that you can think of. There's like, like if you think about, I don't know, police, firefighters, um, all those people that are risking their lives every day. Hmm still the chance of them actually having to go and fight the fire and and actually dying in in fighting the fire it's probably pretty low they'll only do so much as to keep the men that are trying to save the other people safe while trying to save the other people whereas for the test pilots it's, it's really they just went to their job knowing that that um that crashing in a plane is is a pretty common occurrence yeah and that it happened last week to another guy that they know yeah exactly it's i i think it just the psychology that or, or whatever you want to call it, their their um, psychic strength, or or whatever you want to call it, I think it's insane. Yeah, it's uh on my next. It's uh, after I finish the Barnum book. It's the next one. Right now, I'm reading a. Uh, I, I think it's Barnum's autobiography, not autobiography, biography. The P.T. Barnum, the greatest showman yeah. on earth. More so, more so, a bit of a scammer and a <laughs> like a showman in a in a in a hyperbolic way. Yeah, but that's that's what I'm reading right now and. The right stuff is next up on my list. Yeah, it's definitely a great read. All right. Any conclusions? Anything that, any wise words for today? No, I, I think we used other people's wise words a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think, um, as, as you mentioned before in some of our previous episodes, um, books are kind of a double-edged sword because it's easy to just keep reading things instead of doing things. 
but at the same time they they give a lot of yeah. valuable wisdom and and um, advice and entertainment i think and and that's kind of the reason why yeah. why i want to keep reading regularly and and hopefully read more books this year than last year and get more out of them um yeah and i think personally i'll more more try to switch towards the stories type of book than than kind of how to slash advice type mm. of books because at the end of the day in yeah. the long term i think you get more out of these stories plus they're more entertaining and, and fun to read it's a good story yeah stories stick with you better yeah exactly um you always kind of remember the story isn't that those are kind of what guides your actions afterwards because yeah, you have something exactly. to fall back on where, where is there if you read like how to then you're like all right i'll do that and then you forget about it but <laughs> stories have kind of that emotional pull exactly yeah so, so um i kind of want to try to I guess diversify a bit the type of stuff that I'm reading, but um, other than that, hope to just continue reading and and to redevelop the habit of of reading every day at least 30, 40 minutes. How about you? In last thoughts? I guess I have a few thoughts in regards to you know what I read and how I read things in yeah. 2020. A uh, bit of a f- fussy reader. I picked up a lot. Yeah, I I don't like to deny myself. If I see a book, I'll I'll buy it. So in that sense, I don't like to den- deny myself of like knowledge or learning, but at the same time, it's very easy to get carried away and buy stuff and then like <laughs> read 10% of it. So there's that. Um, I have quite a bit sitting on my Kindle, all of which are, you know, fascinating books that I didn't really get into. But at the, at the same time, what, what I realize now is that I, and I take this from language learning, for example, there is some level of impatience that we all have when we're doing things. Yeah. And because yeah. we know... For example, in the case of studying words in a language, you come across a word, you look it up, you, you learn the meaning, but there's a part of you that knows that, all right, uh, I know I'm going to forget this <laughs> in the next week and this is going to suck. And, and that kind of that point goes back and underlines the, the fact that language learning is hard. I'll, I have to learn this word. And I know I'm going to forget it in the next week. And I know I have to do this with all the other words and I'm going to forget them all. Hence, you know, language learning is hard. But one thing that kind of helped me get around that is like to stop being impatient and rushed about things, because I think words are better learned. For example, you read it in a book. I have a Japanese book on affiliate marketing that I was reading at one point. And to earn money in Japanese is kaseguru, right? Am I wrong? Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So that, but the point is that word pops up in that book a lot. So (laughs) You kind of have to trust it. Like, you're right. You're not going to remember it now. You're not going to get much use out of it now. But come back to it later. It's going to show up again later and again and again and again. And, that, and that's where eventual mastery comes along. Now, going back to books, there is, a, you know, I guess also a bit of an impatience and a bit of a frustration I have that sometimes I'll read something and I'll not quite get it or I'll not find an instant, immediate use to what I just read. And I think having now having that in mind, I... I I try to read a little slower nowadays just to like not rush myself and not worry about what am I going to get out of it. Yeah. And I think that has helped to some extent. You know, I try to label books as like this, this book I'm reading for education, this book I'm reading out of curiosity yeah. And, yeah. or entertainment. Just And if it becomes out of curiosity and entertainment, then you're not exactly trying to milk as much wisdom out of it. You're a bit more patient and you're not exactly frustrated because, you know, this is just you're taking your first few steps. So I, I I like to take that approach towards reading now, you know, similar with language learning. You don't get frustrated. Just, it's like the Tao of Pue, just, you know, <laughs> deal with it for now and come back to it later. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think those are wise words, especially um, like I, I think we were talking about this before, but um, 
like whether we actually apply the books to something or whether we just read them and kind of uh, keep it as knowledge or just forget it. Yeah. And I think there's there's value in just reading and and even if you don't apply it right away, like I just find that whether two years down the road, five years down the road, there will be situations where you'll just remember parts of a book or you'll, you'll remember a book um, when you talk to somebody and, and you mention that book and, and it kind of drives the conversation forward or you, rem- you remember a book and um, and it helps you make a better decision in at, at the crossroads that you're facing at that time. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think um, j- just like you, um, I have a tendency to hoard books every now and then. And like, I, I have a hard time going into a bookstore and not buying a book. Yeah. I, I mean, if it's, a, if it's an English bookstore here, not, not in a regular Japanese one. But, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, I think reading books is really valuable, regardless of whether you apply it or not at that time. Mm. And I also think buying books is valuable for ju- just... As, as a visual reminder of, <laughs> of yeah. how sloppy you are with reading, but also about some of the concepts that you know that the book is about and, and you might want to refer to it in the future or or maybe like my Warren Buffett book. It sits on the shelf for five, six, seven, eight years, but then eventually you read it or maybe like the other 15 books sitting on my shelf, you'll never read them, but I think that's fine. It's still yeah. part I of mean, the process. I mean, you'll get to it eventually. Yeah, it's it's not, you know, I, I, guess, I guess that's the thing. We, we all kind of want to get it done and be like, all right, I did that. What's next? But at that point, you're just doing it for the sake of getting it done and for the sake of kind of feeling productive that you've achieved something, you finished the book. I know I take, a, you know, like a, on my Instagram, I'll post, I'm starting to read this now or I finished this now. <laughs> and there's maybe some underlying sense of satisfaction that you finished it and you're showing it off. Yeah. But it's an empty satisfaction. And I, so I, I don't think it's worth to rush through it because there is no rush really. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing is like you, you buy a book genuinely thinking you're going to read it. And I think that's good. I think you should buy it because why not? It's it's 10 bucks and it's potentially a lot of valuable um, knowledge and ideas. Hmm. But then you buy it and you realize that you don't want to read it and it's no longer a priority. So I think, I, I guess the answer then is, so what? Just just keep it on the shelf and, and never read it. I think that's fine. Like how many things do you have at your house that you, that you bought thinking you're going to use them often and <laughs> and, and, and you almost never end up using them. And there's nothing bad about it. It's, it's just part of a trial and error. It sounds like uh, my mom and uh, QVC or HSN, <laughs> the, the TV network where you buy stuff. And if you order in the next five minutes, you also get a free. There, <laughs> in, like at home, at home, my home in New York, I think in my room, there sits a uh, ab machine, <laughs> exercise machine that I don't, I don't think she really used. Basically, you sway from side to side. I guess it's supposed to target your obliques, your side, like that's the side of the ab- abdominal. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there, I, maybe there is a case to hoarding, but. I think there certainly is a case, but I also think there needs to be a way to, to dispose of that stuff. Yeah. After it's been sitting for. Yeah. Yeah, it requires personal judgment. Be like, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a little bit sitting on there. But every now and then, because there are books that I gave away or, you know, unfortunately, I hate to say throw out because I don't feel like it was, it was a fun read for the time being, but I wouldn't consider it a, a worthy of a reread. Yeah. Yeah. I, I throw, I've thrown out some books last year too. Either they're just stuff that I knew I wouldn't read or stuff that um that was more timely, I guess. And it's, it's gotten um, outdated. Like, like, what's the yeah. point of keeping it on your shelf? Yeah. So, but I definitely agree on just like you know, books are a really good way to, especially stories, good way to pick up lessons so that you can apply them back to yourself. And if you don't get anything out of it just yet, well, you know, part of it is that it's that 
kind of impatience that you might develop because you want instant results, but instant results aren't getting to you just yet. So, and you shouldn't worry too much about that either. In that case, this has been the Side Hustles and Stuff podcast, episode 33. We're just going down our uh, best books of 2020. If you read books you might enjoy this episode, please go ahead and take a look at the show notes at sidehustlesandstuff.com forward slash E33 for the list. This has been the Side Hustles and Stuff podcast with Keishi and Yuri. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Start. 32. I thought it was 33. Oh, is it? Let me check. Uh, yeah, it's 33. Oh, you're right. 32 is the last one. And 31 was, can you spot BS? Okay. All right, pretty free then. All right. Ready? Yep. <clears throat> then yeah, <start>. I think so. <laughs> okay. That was a blooper. <laughs> should, should I ask what are we talking about today? <laughs> well, you already know what we're talking about. I think the next thing is drinks. Is a... Whoops. Whoops. What happened? Uh, my books are falling and my phone fell. We will leave that towards the bloopers. <laughs>